So again, the title of the sermon is We're Listening. Please pray with me. Lord, settle our very busy minds and open our hearts so that each one of us may hear what it is you have to say to us in the time and place in which we hear this message. As always, I pray that my words would be your words. Amen. So yes, our romp through the Old Testament continues this morning, and you might be feeling a little bit of whiplash. Where's Moses? What happened to that long journey towards the promised land? Did they get there? Where in the world are we this morning? We're in Shiloh. One challenge with the narrative lectionary is the rapid pace of the walk, or I would really say the mad dash, through the Old Testament. We will come to a crawl in the winter when we spend every Sunday in the same gospel. But in the fall, it is a race through the major events of the history of the Hebrew people. So don't feel bad if you're wondering, where are we? How did we get here? Who's this Samuel kid? And what in the world have we missed? Because we've missed a lot. We left the grumbling Israelites wandering in the desert last week. They had followed Moses out of slavery under Pharaoh towards some promised land that was, well, merely just a promise still last week. They did a lot of wandering in that desert, 40 years to be exact, and in a you've-got-to-be-kidding-me ending to that story, Moses dies before they actually enter the promised land. But leadership has been turned over to Joshua, and the folks have indeed settled into the land that was promised way, way back to Abraham and Sarah. It has not been a rose garden for our Israelites. There has been plenty of conflict with those around them and within their own community as well. How do they deal with these challenges? Well, they think they should have a monarchy complete with a king, just like all the tribes surrounding them. And they pester God and pester. Let us have a king. We want a king. It always makes me think of taking my kids shopping, you know. I want this. I want that. Please, please, please. And, of course, God's answer to them is a bit of a parent's version of, no, you don't need a king. Why? Because as God repeatedly points out to them, you've got me. I, God, am your king. But just like last week, God listens and provides. And God's provision is to lift up a judge in the times of conflict, disagreement, and struggle. And you can read all about it in the book of Judges if you want to read some pretty crazy stuff. But the thing to remember about this time of Israel's history is that judges were raised up by God to minister in a particular situation. They were not rulers. They did not serve for a set time period. They did not pass on their positions to their heirs. They came to power to deal with one particular situation. And when that situation had resolved, they stepped back into the community. One of my absolute favorite things about this time is that there were women judges. Some of their stories are really wild. But of course, through all of this time, through every judge's time, God remained their king. So we're now centuries past Moses' time, and we're actually coming towards what will be the end of the judges' time. And this is where we drop back into the story of Israel today, and we meet the boy Samuel, his mentor Eli, in the tabernacle. This is the large tent where the Ark of the Covenant was held. The Ark held the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff, and a jar of manna. What is it? 
Anybody was here last week? Manna, what is it? That's what manna means. Anyway, all this stuff is in this tabernacle tent, and the tabernacle is portable. It moves with the people as they move. It is the holy of holy places for them. And so we find Eli, an old man losing his sight, and Samuel, a young boy who has been living with Eli since his toddler years because his mother dedicated him to the service of God even before he was born. So we find the old man and the young boy sleeping through the night. Now, for our ancient listeners, and remember, this would have been a told story before they read it. They would have heard this for centuries. This would have been a great slapstick story, at least the beginning of it. It has all the makings of a Marx Brothers or Keystone Cops scene of confusion, double entendre, slamming doors, hidden messages. Samuel, our young protagonist, is asleep in the tabernacle. His aging and blind mentor, Eli, sleeps in another room. And Samuel hears someone calling his name and naturally assumes it is the old man. He rushes to his side. Here I am, what is it? And Eli, of course, has not called Samuel, so sends him back to bed. Repeat the entire scene two more times. And now, add in the pun on words with names. Samuel in Hebrew means God hears or God has heard. And Eli in Hebrew means my God. So three times around the circle, the boy God hears is going to my God and declaring here I am. By now the ancients are slapping their knees and belly laughing until their sides hurt. And then the story turns serious, quite serious. Eli finally realizes what is happening. Samuel's not making this up. Someone is indeed calling him in the night, and that someone is God. And so Eli becomes the good mentor, sending Samuel back to bed once more, but this time with these instructions to listen to all that God says. And in fact, the next time God calls, Eli says to Samuel, tell God to speak. Tell God you are listening. Tell God you are ready to hear whatever it is God wants to share. And unfortunately for Eli, what God wants to tell Samuel will not be good news, at least for Eli's family. You see, Eli's sons have been the temple priests, and they have, not, they have been doing some pretty nasty stuff. They're stealing from the collection plates. They're messing around with the women. Basically, it is clergy misconduct of the worst kind. The presbytery would have been called in by now. And God has heard of the problems, and God has seen that this current setup is not working well, and it is being decimated by Eli's sons. But there is good news in that for the rest of Israel because God tells Samuel that God is about to do a new thing in Israel, a new sort of leadership that will put an end to the disgusting issues at hand. But it will also put an end to Eli's family. They will be out of business, so to speak. So Samuel spends the rest of the night lying awake in the dark, his heart wrenching, his head spinning. You all know the feeling, dread of that thing that you must do when the day breaks, hanging over you like a guillotine. And sure enough, when morning comes, Eli calls to him and wants to know what happened. Did God call again? If so, Samuel, did you listen? And by the way, what did God have to say? And the text is very clear that Samuel is afraid. He loves Eli. 
He has lived with Eli his whole life, has been raised up in the service of the tabernacle under Eli's watch and care. He is not looking forward to telling Eli that God is not happy with the clan, that God is going to change the way things are done, and those new plans will not include the sons of Eli. And here is an amazing part of the story. Somewhere in his heart, Eli knows that his sons are a disgrace. But also somewhere in his heart, he loves God more. And so he insists that Samuel tell him the whole story of the night, every last difficult detail of God's message. He is courageous in the face of what he presumes will be a harsh message. But his love and respect for God overshadow his own personal wants his trust in God and God's plans overwhelms any defenses he might put up, any denial of what Samuel might say. He refuses to hide from God's message because he knows that God indeed knows best. And dear Samuel, well, he finds the courage to speak the hard words to Eli. He speaks the truth to Eli, the difficult truth, but it comes from a place of love for Eli and for God. The end of the text is beautiful. It's a beautiful testament to what happens when someone hears God's call and then speaks that word no matter how difficult to those who need to hear it. The text ends with, so Samuel told him word for word. He held back nothing. And then Eli said, it is the Lord. Let the Lord do whatever seems best. And all of Israel knew that Samuel was the real thing, a true prophet of God a true prophet of God. They knew Samuel was the real thing because he didn't shrink away from speaking God's truth. They knew Samuel was trustworthy even though the message he had to speak was difficult. He trusted first in God. He knew that God's ways were always better than his own. Samuel put God's request and will above his own personal comfort or discomfort. Both Samuel and Eli are examples of what it means to hear God's call upon our lives. Samuel was unable at first to discern that this was God calling, and it took someone else, Eli, to enlighten him. And then when it turned out God's call was difficult, Samuel was still willing to follow along, to speak the message that had been shared with him. And Eli... Eli was willing to put aside his own pride, his own ego, and lean into his love and trust for God. Eli was willing to open himself up to the truth of what Samuel and God were saying. We call this story the call of Samuel, and it's interesting to me that it takes Eli for Samuel to hear and receive the call. It's kind of how our Presbyterian system understands call. A person may feel called, may know in their heart that God is calling them to something in particular, but we believe it takes others to affirm that call, to say, yes, we too understand that God is calling you. We see that, just like Eli understood before Samuel did. And Eli was a mentor, sending Samuel back to bed with specific instructions on how to hear God and then what to do with what is heard. And all this leaves me with some questions. What does it take for us to hear God calling? 
Who helps us hear God's call? How do we help others hear God's call? And who is called? So I'm going to start with that last question because I think it's the easiest. We're all called, every last one of us. But I was dismayed to hear on a podcast last week that no matter how many times we preacher types stand up here and say that, lay folks don't seem to buy it, meaning all of you in the pews. And I wonder why that is. The podcast went on to explain that most folks continue to see call as meaning to ordained work, to the ministry of priesthood or clergy. And yet our own denomination talks about the priesthood of all believers, which is a direct quote from the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. And we Presbyterians, well, we've set our government up so that power and authority are shared equally by the ordained and laity. So then I got thinking about maybe the problem is more that we don't know how to speak about call outside of these mystical stories that clergy might tell about their own call, stories that may sound more like Samuel's than how I ended up working in technology, or why I became a school teacher, or this is why I chose to be a homemaker, or when I got the call to be a deacon in my congregation, this is why I said, yes. We don't talk about those stories, do we? But all of those are calls. They are a call on your heart, because what is call? It is the knowledge of God's nudging in your life. It is the understanding that God has a plan for you, and then you seek out that plan and live it. Call is merely the dream in your heart and soul that God has planted for your life. So you're a garbage collector? What calls you to that? Well, maybe the desire, the dream to provide for your family, to put food on the table and be a good citizen. You are a sister or a brother? Well, there is a call to love and care for your siblings in ways that foster relationships and all of you having the best life that you can have. You're a spouse, where your call is to lift up and support and enhance your partner's life so that they can become all that God intends for them, too. You are a parent. Your call is to raise up the next generation, to mold individuals that become contributing members of society that seek justice and mercy for all. You serve as a volunteer tutor. Well, your call is to share your gift of the love of children to help them advance in learning and education. You are a dancer or a painter or a musician. Your call is to make the world a more beautiful place to share your creative gifts with others, to inspire us, console us, and express dreams we might not have on our own. Do you see what I mean? There are dreams and desires in all our hearts, and those are God's call upon our lives. And yes, every single one of us is called by God. And we're called in ways that only we, our individual person who's so unique, can fulfill. 
Now, the next questions that I asked may be more challenging. What does it take for us to hear God calling us? Who helps us hear God's call? And how do we help others hear their call? Now, we had an absolutely terrific discussion about this at the Wednesday afternoon Bible study, and we shared lots of ideas about how to hear God's call. Unanimous was the recognition that we must be intentional. We must set aside time on a consistent basis to spend with God. It doesn't have to be a lot of time. Some talked about the benefits of just starting each day reading a two to three minute online devotional, but making that the beginning of their day. We talked about walks in nature, getting lost listening to music, journaling, coming here and walking our own beautiful labyrinth, traditional things like time in meditation or devoted prayer, even drawing, doodling, needlework. All of these practices can open your heart for the nudges of God. The key is intentionality and consistency. How do you nurture the relationships in your life? with your family members or good friends or colleagues. Well, you spend time with them, right? No relationship can flourish or be fruitful if the two people never spend any time communicating. Can you imagine what would happen to your best friendship if you never spoke, spent a day together, shared a meal? It would disintegrate. And the same is true for our relationship with God. In order to hear God, we must be willing to be the other person in the relationship. We must be willing to show up. Now, something else mentioned on Wednesday that I find is very key is trust. I think we are too quick to brush off the nudges, the intuitive reactions that we get from God. We don't believe in our hearts that God really would speak to us. And so we dismiss that little nudge, that call, the message, the communication, the thought. But if we can trust that every single one of us means so much to God, that indeed God would reach out to us, then maybe we wouldn't be so quick to ignore God's call. And over time, as we pay more attention to these nudges and dreams and gut feelings, it does become easier and clearer to hear God consistently. Now, over these next few months, we are going to be asking what God is calling to us as a congregation. And so these practices are going to be key in your search for a new pastor. We need to be able to hear God's dreams for PCWS as we enter the search phase of our time together. So I'm going to ask each of you to do a few things over the coming weeks and months. Number one, please Set aside some regular time daily to either pray, pray that prayer that we prayed at the beginning of worship, or read a few lines of scripture, or follow an online devotional, whatever it will be, but give God some devoted time. It doesn't have to be long, even five minutes every day. Number two, trust. Trust that those nudges and dreams and desires you are getting are from God. Don't dismiss what comes to you. Jot it down. Watch for patterns. Does the same thought keep popping up? 
Does the same topic come up in different conversations? Pay attention. I always joke that God is so persistent until I have to be hit overhead with a, a two by four until I will finally pay attention. Number three, share with each other what you are discovering or hearing. Are others finding the same dreams surfacing? Samuel couldn't have heard without Eli. We will need each other to hear clearly over the next months. And finally, number four, lift each other up, guide each other, support each other like Eli did. If you see someone with gifts for the pastor nominating committee or gifts to be a deacon or an elder, point that out. Tell them you see the gifts in them. Ask them if it's okay if you nominate them to the nominating committee. It takes more than an individual to know what gifts they have and how they can be used in service to the church. So in short, be like Samuel. Ask God to speak to you. Then take what God has shared and speak it to those who need to hear it. And always be like Eli. Put down your ego and trust that God's words are meant for you. Listen for God's call. Listen for God's claim on your life. Share what you hear with others. Always speak the truth in love. Every day, let all of us say, we're listening. Here I am, God. Amen.